When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How has a changing climate affected the rise and fall of civilization? Peter Frankopan is Professor of Global History at Oxford and the author of The Silk Roads, the definitive world history of our time. He's back now with another, The Earth Transformed, which tells the story of the influence of a changing climate on the story of humankind. To find out more, we brought him together with Sir Tony Robinson, star, of course, of the best historical sitcom ever made, and the presenter of Time Team and many other acclaimed historical documentaries. Enjoy. Good evening. A lovely large house tonight. How great. Uh, uh, let's dive straight in, because we haven't got very long. But uh, Just a few sort of uh, uh, warm-up questions, first of all. Tell us about your surname. Uh, so uh, I'm, my, I'm from an old Croatian family, so Dalmatia, the Venice, all that part of the world. And that, I think, is probably... All, I mean, it's the least interesting question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'd have thought that... Right, they go the, downhill from the, here, the, mate. The, the right opening question is, are we all doomed? <laughs> you know, do we all end up frying? Is climate something we should think about in today's world as being... Uh, something that is new. Why is it that people have been worried about climate since the beginning? So, you know, going straight into into the book, the, the, you know, it was it was very interesting to me growing up that the Garden of Eden, where land and everything was all plentiful, when when man fell, uh, in the way that the Book of Genesis tells it, and the way that Quran tells it, all because of woman's fault of re, of eating an apple, that the punishments given to I'm not here to tell you that's wrong. I'm here to tell you what the <laughs> book that is the holy book for Jews, Christians, and, and Muslims in, the, in global religions has this set up from the beginning that screws up gender. Obviously, that's what I'm here to tell you as well. But also that punishments are ecological and environmental. And I think that legacy of how we think about the world being catastrophized, apocalyptic, and environmentally dangerous, and climate is, I think, much more interesting than... than um, but I will talk about cricket if you want, <laughs> uh, or about Star Wars and other arcane things. But, you, um, you do make a warning, though, at the beginning of the book, when, you know, yeah. when you're just joking about what, what the book is about, warning about being too reductive yeah. about uh, the environment and people living on the planet. What, what did you mean by that? Well, everybody, I mean, so, okay, so my, my, I met my wife when I was a student. She's an anthropologist. And uh, she told me, entirely rightly, more or less the first cup of coffee we ever had together, that anthropology is all about the fact you can't generalise. You know, that although I'm a man, and although I'm a social demographic, and I have a whatever, all of, us, all of us have our own stories, and all of us are extremely different. Superficially, we can all be lumped together as British, or as English, or as political parties, or which football team you support. But actually, it's entirely subjective how you define people. And... Uh, being, I think, trying to be a historian, you're always trying to think about nuance and how to, how to 
explain that things are complex. It's very easy to talk about the Germans or talk about the Babylonians, but one needs to think about who one's talking about. And so, you know, for example, you know, the, the book starts, it does the geological history, which I mean, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about. But in the world that I have worked on before and why I worked on the Silk Roads, where there are lots of nomads, there are lots of people who are mobile, um, they tended to have been written out of history because they don't write written records. They get written about as being primitive. They get written about as being without reason. And that's partly because, you know, you and your, in your day job or night job, Tony, is uh, doing with, uh, with archaeology, you know, we love finding archaeological imprints that are made from rock and stone and things that allow us to think that's what civilization is. And that sort of sets up the idea that people who built things that are structures that those are more valuable. Civilization is the history of cities. It's not of mobile peoples or indigenous peoples or peoples who live different kinds of records. And so in my history as a historian and what I write about in the book too, it's to try to remind that you know, when, for example, the great cities of Babylon or Nineveh fell, partly for climatic reasons, um, that's bad if you're a priest or if you own a palace, but it's not completely clear that that's bad if you're a worker who's being coerced to give up your hours and every day in backbreaking conditions to harvest grain that is given to somebody else. So in that sense, I guess it's, you can talk about the Babylonians or past civilizations, but it's reminding that you have to always be looking at the small grains and to try to remember that generalization is dangerous, it's often misleading, and it's all in the eye of the beholder. And I think good history needs to be fine-grained. So, you know, in fact, those of you have been told off by one of my colleagues this afternoon, so I'm a little bit bruised, that the footnotes aren't in the book, because it would be a 230-page book on its own. And I, I did an interview with Carlo Rovelli last week, and his new book is 120 pages. So he's like, you're crazy. Why would you write a book that long? And you write two books the length of mine, just for your footnotes, uh, because my, my academic colleagues want the footnotes in the book. But, um, you know, I think that you, you need to be able to hold up complex ideas with the material that shows what you're talking about. And, and the difficulty is, is not stopping all the time to qualify and remind, but to be, to be as accurate as you can be. You, you talked about those big early cities, and mm. I, to me that was one, one of the most interesting things in the first part of the book, that you, you describe the world prior to human beings, this great kind of whirling, energised, fiery uh, little planet being bombarded by stuff from outer space, and the seas waxing and waning and all that energy inside yeah. trying to get out through the, uh, uh, through the various cracks in the continents. Then very slowly or comparatively slowly hominids appear and then we appear three and a half million years later or whatever. Then there's the Ice Age. Then after the Ice Age, it's like this, this whoosh, the speed with which these big cities appear yeah. is kind of unbelievable. What, what happened? What was it that the weather did that made well, it? You know, happen? What's interesting is, as a, as a historian, you know, we, when you when you do, uh, if you if you go through the academic path and you do a master's or a thesis or a dissertation or whatever, you know, you become very specialised in something quite specific, and quite often those little narrow topics might cover a, a day in the course of the First World War. But that history you just described, you counted us through five billion years <laughs> of history, and things become more interesting, of course, to historians when you can find written sources and written records. And as I've already said, that excludes people who record their histories in different ways, with oral traditions, or with no, you know, which sometimes don't survive. But that, that scope of why it is that people start to work together and create the first urban settlements, what we now roughly call towns and cities, 
they grow up in a, in a small number of ecologically contained zones. The Nile, for example, where you have the strip either side of the river that, that floods every year and it's great for the silt that it makes the fields ultra-fertile. In Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates. In the Indus Valley. And then the Yangtze and the Yellow Rivers in China, the, the main centres. There are other pockets elsewhere. But what, what happens is that as populations grow partly through calorie consumption, through predictable things like being able to, to um, domesticate grains and animals, then you need to work out to live in closer proximity to each other. And that produces lots of different outcomes. One is that higher population densities, which in theory is great, but actually, like in lockdown, sometimes it's quite nice to not be in a room with hundreds of people. Sometimes it's quite nice to have your own space. But when you're pushed together, like London, this wonderful city, there are moments where that's absolutely brilliant, where you can go out every evening and taste something different, see something different. But there are moments where you kind of want to be alone and you have a small space. So cities grow in places where the population size can't expand into the mountains, into the, into the deserts that don't get the water that the Nile produces. And when you start to get that rhythm in these sort of different areas... Uh, urban settlements produce similar kinds of outcomes. They produce inequalities. There's inequalities typically around property ownership and who has the best access to water sources or the best food. Who is able to provide a cosmological explanation? You know, people like me, Oxford Dons, 5,000 years ago, had it easy. Because you'd say, well, this is why you've been punished. You're much too complicated for you. And uh, in the Indic systems, in, in Indus Valley, funnily enough, in the 4,000 years ago or so, in the Indus Valley, there's very little inequality levels. Houses are all about the same size. There's no particular difference around who seems to be living where. And that's probably because the course of the rivers changes a lot, in the, the Ganges in particular, the Indus. And when that happens, it means that you know, the plot that was your Wembley Stadium one year is in the wrong place the year after. But that, that growth of cities is to do with the success in allowing large populations to build up together and then finding ways in which you can get people to cooperate. And you can do that through convincing them to cooperate, explaining why you share the profits, or you can do it through coercion. And one of the things I write about in my book, again, drawn from the stuff I've done on the Great Wall of China, or the Great Wall systems of China, I should say, rather than the one Great Wall, lots of walls tied up together, is that those early city walls that start to grow up, incredibly impressive, some of them you can still see in what's now Iraq, are monumentally impregnable to an outside enemy. That you can't throw things over it, you can't sack them, you can't get through. So the question is, what do those walls show in these big early cities? And you find them all over Central Asia, in Uzbekistan I'm involved in a project. Incredibly exciting, they're put on the tops of hills, you, you can't find a way in. And those walls are probably, partly to show the magnificence of the ruler and of the city, you know, it's a statement, but most practically they are to make sure that your labour force doesn't escape. They're designed to keep people on the inside rather than to keep people out. It's a bit like that's what the Great Wall does. It protects um, from the steppe nomads, from the nomadic worlds, but it means that people can't run away. And but after you've had these cities, yeah. as you say, so contained, yeah. it seems a relatively short time before they, uh, they give birth to empires. And when they give birth to empires, you've got a whole different set of problems. Was, was yeah. there a 
climactic driver behind that? In another world, could it just have stayed like in a science fiction film with lots of different powerful cities? I think, well, you, you, you ha- that pat- patchwork of lots of successful cities is a fantastic question, and I'm, I'm probably going to draw you a few thousand years out of place, but I'd love to come back. To, to, don't let me... I'll try, and, I'll try and circle back if my memory reminds me, but it is fascinating that networks like the Silk Roads that I work on, these connections across Eurasia, have their parallels in Mesoamerica, uh, where you have basically city-states across what's now particularly Mexico, Guatemala, also a bit in Honduras, or in Andean civilizations. And what's interesting is that they, they all rise and fall together. And if one plank fails because of drought or, uh, or uh, excessive rains, or... Um, emerging infectious disease that kills the population in heavy numbers, then the whole deck of cards comes, comes tumbling down. And a very clever colleague of mine, Victor Lieberman, wrote a book called Parallel Empires. So I'll tell you the difference between empires and cities in a moment. But uh, in, in about 1000 AD, for the next 300 years, you have a whole group of what's called parallel empires growing up in the Middle East, the Great Abbasid Empire, the Fatimid Caliphate in what's now Egypt and the connections it has down the coast of West Africa, East Africa, rather. And then you have these great empires of the Khmer, centred on the great city of Angkor, uh, Pagan, in what's broadly now Burma, uh, Srijavaya, which is sort of the Indonesian archipelagos, uh, and then you have the Champa in uh, and the Chola in South Asia, the Champa in what's now Vietnam, and then the Sung, the Tang and the Sung dynasty. And all of these are galvanising each other. And they don't just do it because they are trading, it's also they're competing with each other. When you have emperors who's one more glorious than the next, it's a bit like when we get these state visits and we put the flags up, down, up and down the mall and we, you know, we put the, the, the queen as was, or now the king in Buckingham Palace, these ceremonials that have on the one hand absolutely no value, and yet they're presentationally quite important. They're, they're trying to say something, that dialogue that, again, anthropologists learn to look at about what, what is that ritual all for. And so what, what empires, why those all rise is because they've got enough space between them that they don't come into competition. And what empires do, and I remember to come back round to the Babylonians, these great cities, is that they are all empires or kingdoms or realms or hierarchical structures are all trying to acquire resources that they bring back to the centre. That, that's all an empire is. And you do that through racial harassment, you do it through extraction, you do it through coercion, you do it through, all sorts, through trade, all sorts of different ways. But the role of a, of a state is to bring resources from the outside and to expand to bring those in. And that means that you have competition between two cities, for example, Guldea and Lagash in what's Mesopotamia. They have a war that is amazingly even longer than our blessed 100 years war with the French. Uh, it lasts about 150 years because you're trying to fight for a finite set of resources. And in that part of the world, in Mesopotamia, for example, where these cities grow, almost the first thing that happens is that all trees are cut down. So you have to import timber from India. Uh, It's great for growing crops, but metals don't exist in Mesopotamia. So you send scouting parties, you set up little colonies in the mountains, in the Zagros Mountains, what's now Iran. You send trading missions to Egypt to try to get you the things that you want and that you need. And that, that, that model of competition works quite well if you have competitors. I mean, again, jumping forward in time, um, there's going to be nothing left to talk about after this answer, by the way. (laughs) Sorry, jumping forward in time. One of the reasons why Europe became so successful in the last two or three hundred years is because we were intensely competitive with with each other. And our sciences in in Europe and in the Western world grew from a combination of 
almost constant warfare that prioritised scientific discoveries that made gunfire more efficient, allowed us to make rifles faster. The rate of fire went up and up and up. And that, that means you need to have new ingredients to make gunpowder, for example. And that, 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 that competition is really, really important. Here, in, in the case of Britain, one of the reasons we did so well technologically wasn't because of great universities, which get probably too much credit for these kinds of things, or great scholars and thinkers. The amazing thing, and there's very clever colleagues of mine working on this, what we were really, really good at here were, it was called the age of tinkering, sort of people in sheds working out how to make things just slightly better. But lots of people tried to make things slightly better. And a new paper that's come out um, about just before Christmas is that where that tinkering in Britain was most acute were in regions that recruited most heavily to the Napoleonic Wars. So if people went to go and fight or got press gang to fight on ships, suddenly there were fewer people around. And so the reward is, how do you... How do you Industrialize. How do you make things if you don't have manpower? And you do that by sitting in your shed, tinkering, trying to make something more resilient, more reliable. And those advances taken together push you forward. So competition well, between cities is what, is what drives these rhythms. Well, hurtling back another 4,000 <laughs> years, I'm, I'm doing this very well, aren't I? <laughs> um, uh, that, that sense of tinkering, I feel, has always been there. You, yeah. you, um, you refer to um, a, a number of the stories about how the gods made human beings. And there's one South American you talk, talk about, which I, I, I read about four times, it just made me laugh so much, was that the gods tried to make people out of mud, but then the mud was really messy and kept slipping through their fingers and they failed totally. And in the end, they made them out of maize. And it's, it's a wonderful image, but it's also, it's created by people who tinker in backyards, isn't it? That's right, and, and tinkering sometimes doesn't quite work. So in fact, when the, when the Spanish arrive in the Americas, maize has this incredibly important role in the food and the calorie consumptions of Central America, but also in its in its theologies, you know, what maize does. And in fact, the Spanish arrive, and you can't... I mean, sometimes you can't understand what Spanish people are saying anyway, with apologies to people who are Spanish. I love speaking Spanish, and by the way, I should say that. But you know, when someone doesn't have a language that you can understand, it's how do you, how do you, make, how do you make sense? Here in Britain, what we tend to do when we're abroad is we speak a bit louder, and, and, and slower but louder. Uh, what the, what the uh, people in the Mexica in, the, in Central America do is that they... They say, wait, just stay there. We can't understand a single word you're saying. And they run to bring a piece of maize to say, like Google, a bit like Google Translate would do, put it in your mouth and talk, and the maze will allow us to understand what you're saying. It'll act as a kind of filter. So tinkering doesn't always work. But it, the way in which people think they're able to solve problems, how they're trying to sort of improve things, is, I guess, not that surprising, because that's, that's, what, that's what we all do. I mean, even, even I, as a historian, trying to improve and to bring together work that, uh, that many people have done before me. But that's what history is. That's what scholarship is. That's what the sciences are. It's trying to find small advances that, that make you see things in, in different ways. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code 
HOWTO, just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. You've, you've talked quite a lot about the exchange of, of trade and the competition, but there's, there's also ideas, aren't there? And, and you make the point that really from very early on, remarkably early on, it seems as though ideas were travelling quite long ways. But then, after the period that we've talked about a bit, which is the great early empires, you get yeah. what we call the Axial Age, where suddenly it seems like all over the world people are going, hey, wow, there's only one God and we should love each other and we'll write all this stuff down. Uh, how did that happen and was it anything to do with the weather? Uh, well, the way, you know, okay, so there, there are two, I mean, they're very, very, very I mean, these are nightmare questions to have in finals so I'm very pleased I'm sitting here rather than my poor students having to answer these So the, the Axial Age, so in about the 5th century BC, so about 2,500 years ago as Tony says, there's a sudden efflorescence of Buddhism and Jainism that are kind of obviously trying to react against uh, Indic scriptures and texts, you have the sort of the, the great civilizational scholarship of, of the Greeks uh, we don't trouble the scorers in Western Europe. I should always remind that. We don't say anything that's of any interest here at all until pretty late in the day. Uh, and then you have the efflorescence in, in, in what's now Iran, Persia, these kinds of worlds. And it's a really interesting question. Carl Jaspers was the man who came up with this idea of the axial age, that somehow it's like a dinner party that people have said, oh, God, I'm going to follow that up. You think there's a reincarnation. Hang on, so how do plants fit into that? Because you have Greeks who pop up who say, in a previous life... You know, most people say in previous life I was Napoleon. Never, never I was, you know, had a shitty career, which statistically you're very, very likely to have been. But say, and you have a Greek guy who says, uh, rather than putting yourself first, maybe you came back, maybe you were reincarnated from a plant. And people go, bloody hell, no one's ever suggested that before. Maybe I've not been reincarnated as a human species. Maybe, maybe we're joined into this natural world. And, and probably what that's to do with, it's not so much climatic, but it's to do with the rise of cities. And there is a reason why you park people with pointy heads in universities, and the many great universities in, in this country, because you think and you hope that if you put them all together, that they'll spend time talking to each other. In fact, quite often my colleagues, they can't bear, you know, they'll, they'll refuse to talk to each other. But that's a whole other story for a different event. I love my history faculty, we're very different to others, but of course. Uh, but, but I think when you, when you have cities that grow, then you have much higher levels of exchange of ideas as well as goods. And that's why I do, you can have these genius women and men who pop up in sort of remote regions. And peripheries are really interesting in how they disrupt ideas and quite often pop up with new, new ideas and new thoughts. But the axial age is probably over-dramatized in thinking that there are people going backs and forwards because it's big, long distances. But there's a sudden reason to be asking why are we here and how do we do things? How do we learn from each other? And I guess one of the oldest things we try and work out amongst all these things is partly why are we here on earth? What's, what's, is there a God? If so, who is he, she, they? What do they intend for us? But the most obvious way in which that plays out is why the hell is it raining all the time? Or why, why, why have the rains not come this season and therefore we're all going to go hungry? And that has both a cosmological, the, theological explanation, you're being punished by God, or the emperor's a bad person, or the ruler's a bad person, or the ruler didn't do the right dance for the gods, or didn't make the right offerings. But it also has a scientific explanation. And our, our common ancestors, going back many, many thousands of years, have all been deeply influenced in trying to work that out and to measure why the world is and functions the way that it does. And 
4,000 years ago, people have worked out that the length of the year is 365.4, you know, whatever it is, 0.25, 0.26, rather. They were starting to work on concepts of pi and trying to work out how the cosmos all functions and works. And those, those kinds of things show a, a high level of... I mean, Ravelli, again, he said this to me last week. He went, an idiot can work out when an eclipse is going to happen. So I said, could you get a piece of paper and a pen and just write it out so when I speak to my friend Tony, I can explain why. And he said, it's totally predictable, it's mathematical, there's absolutely nothing to it. But that was all shown and proven and codified, written down three and a half thousand years ago. So lots of people have been trying to work out how to weather climate and changes. And the thing that is a real challenge is not what happens when things are stable. It's, it's when things suddenly change. And those, those triggers are often to do with either the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit or the big global climate patterns, you know, the El Nino, La Nina cycle that we know about. But sometimes things like volcanoes suddenly throw things in a way that, that produces explanation, the need for explanations that are not immediately obvious because often, these are, usually, these volcanoes are erupting in parts of the world that no one knows about. You can't, you, you can't understand what's happened. We had two of those in, in, in that sort of... In, the, in that, that period between the, the rise of the original cities and Jesus, we, the, the, there are two of those that, that you focus on quite a lot, which is uh, one is the, 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 the great drought of like 2000 yeah. BC, and then the great flood, echoes of which presumably are in Noah, uh, uh, about 1000 a, a BC. They, they were real game changers, weren't they? Yeah, they were game. I mean, so, so look, the, the flood appears in the Bible, in the book of Genesis and in the Quran, and the fact that it's written down and commented on and features in also the Atrahasis, which is a great Mesopotamian text about 4,000 years old, and in Egyptian texts around the same time, and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, shows that there was obviously a chronic pluvial event that, that completely transformed humans' understanding of, of the environment. In the case of religions, it was that this was obviously a form of punishment. And these punishments... Uh, whether they're right or wrong is a, perhaps a different story, but you find evidence of them in the scientific and archaeological records. I mean, that's the thing that's most interesting, that these floods did happen on a kind of epic scale. Another example of that is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which those of you who read your Bible or your Torah or your Quran will know is a, were, were twin cities that were punished by God because they were filled with vice. He destroyed them completely, filled them with sulfur. It now turns out that those cities were in fact well, certainly were based on the, the story probably of Tel al-Hamam in, Al in, in what's now Syria, which was hit by uh, either one big or lots of small cosmic airbursts that flattened everything for 25 square kilometres and turned everything to dust, produced salt that made this, the, the, the land completely saline. So that story that you'll again re- you'll remember from your uh, Bible studies, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah both being destroyed, uh, but Lot's wife turning around and being turned into a pillar of ash, uh, or pillar of salt, sorry. And that probably has some connection to something that happened, a celestial event. So it doesn't take much to work out that people sitting around go, what the hell was that, and why did it happen, and why did it happen to them rather than to us? And those kinds of explanations for disasters are quite interesting in their kind of climatological impacts. So the floods you mentioned is the origins of the Chinese imperial dynasties about 2,000 years ago, and then there's another, there are a series of waves of this that happen, and one is with the so-called Sea Peoples in 1200 BC that sees the end of the Minoan civilizations on Crete, and you see a, a sort of complete change because of 
what happens as a result, not just of climatic shifts, but because if you're a bit like us in the modern age, if there are too many of you and you're in the wrong place, then, then when things go wrong, they go very, very, very badly wrong. So one example in the modern world would be Saudi Arabia, a country that has not a single river, not a single lake, currently burns 750,000 barrels of oil per day just for its air conditioning. And probably that's not the wisest ecological or economic choice to be making over the long run. But if you build cities in places that are ecologically fragile, going back into the ancient world, then it doesn't take much to tilt, tilt them over. And, it, and the climate is not, it's, it's only ever the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the resilience and the adaptability that, that are the challenges. And in fact, in my book, I write about lots of cases I think, where... I think, where, I, I think that's yeah. one of the big things about your book that you remind us of, that's the polite way of saying it, chapter after chapter, is that the, the climate is usually one of the factors albeit it can often be a major one, uh, that change behaviour and change lives. And I'm thinking in particular, just to move us on a bit, to that time when the sun shone and the Mediterranean was gorgeous and the Romans appeared. And we, we do talk about that as a, like a kind of fair-weather Roman era. It kind of makes sense of how the Romans suddenly popped up and were so successful, isn't it? Well, we, we, lo- you know, we love our... our... Roman history. I mean, walk, walk around Oxford, and most of the colleges are modelled on uh, neoclassical architecture, Greek legacy too, but Roman too. You know, we, and we, we know Mark Zuckerberg loves the Emperor Augustus and etc. You know, we, we, the Roman stuff is really important. It used to be, in fact, in my in my university until very recently, it was called jurisprudence if you studied law rather than just why well, not call it law. And you had to do the codes of Justinian, the great great Roman legislator. So the, these, so the, Rome has this this hugely symbolic role of, you know, how we adopted, partly to British imperial history, that was the kind of model of what the British, British Empire should look like. And uh, what's interesting about that is that the reason why Rome became so powerful wasn't actually because of the bits of Europe we like to go and visit, you know, Tuscany and Umbria and southern France and Spain. Uh, the most important part of the Roman Empire by far was North Africa. And the second most important part was the Middle East because it connected to the trade and the connections and the cities and the empires living further eastwards, to the point that, you know, if, if any of my former students are here, you'll, you'll have heard me go blue in the face, that, that when new Rome is built, the city of Constantinople, it's because Rome is sort of in the wrong place. But the reason how Rome literally transitioned to become uh, empire, if that's an okay word to use these days, where, where, where it goes from being a kind of important Mediterranean power to a proper empire, is with the annexation of Egypt. And why that happens, you'll remember depending how old you are, the carry-on film of carry-on Cleo, or they're good, some people. My, my undergraduates have never, literally never heard of the carry-on films. Um, so, or, or, you know, the, or the great Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor film. Uh, that what happens, in, it's not just that Cleopatra's a woman and you know, therefore she's a pushover, it's that there's a volcanic eruption in Alaska in 43 BC, just at the point where uh, Julius Caesar has been murdered. And the vengeance that the, uh, to, to, to avenge Julius Caesar, Augustus and Lepidus and Mark Antony head off to go and track down Brutus, Cassius and the rest of them. And in that moment, it opens up what might come next. And uh, Cleopatra, it didn't probably help that she is a woman, although she wasn't the first female queen of Egypt by any means, but she was an outsider. She's a descendant of a Greek general. And being an outsider, 
I don't want to say German royal family, but you know, th- there are moments where that can be dangerous. And they can be as dangerous as you want them to be. It doesn't matter if it's a bad day, but, and it does if it, does, it doesn't. So it's highly selective. But what happens in the case of Egypt is that it, it all snowballs, that the, Niles, the Nile floods don't happen directly as a result of the volcanic ash that goes into the atmosphere, prevents the rains from falling, heats up the earth. We have a sort of two and a half degree temperature change of the Nile. And that suddenly produces an opportunity for rivals to say, aha, here's my chance to knock off Cleopatra and take her, take her down and become Pharaoh myself. And that makes Cleopatra reach out. She gambles on Mark Antony. He's probably the better looking of the three. He's got the best track record, best CV on LinkedIn for sure compared to the other two. You probably bet, it's probably quite a sensible bet. He's very popular with the army, which is the key. And she bets wrong. And by betting wrong, and Augustus, or Octavius as he was at that point, getting right, is able to force Egypt, like plucking a ripe apple from the tree at the exact right moment of time, which might not have happened had the eruption, had not whatever. So as a historian, you've got to be quite careful not to say, ah, well, it was a volcano here, Roman Empire there. But that, that sequence is all quite important. And then, then, of course, what Rome, what its occupation of Nile does means unlimited free food, number one. Uh, second, you can then tax the Egyptians and you, don't need to, you can give tax breaks. You can have, you can have uh, the tax breaks for the rich and famous in Rome, which goes down very well. And as Augustus writes when, he, when he's near the end of his life, he says, I found this, this city in brick and I left it in marble because Rome, what all empires do, the British in India, the Spanish in the Americas, etc., 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 you take off something else, you bite it, you suck out all of the oxygen, all the blood, and uh, you enrich yourselves. But that was the key to Roman prosperity and to that empire that we then think of, because all these great monuments that we now recognise as Roman are all built with, off the back of goods, produce, and of course the agricultural produce that has a connection to the climate environment. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behaviour. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the eventual West Roman collapse... Yeah, that's great. So I, I wish I was cleverer. So a good friend of mine, the Huns, I'll give a quick prime on that. In the, in the, third, in the fourth century, the 300s, there's a moment of, of multi-decades aridity on the steppes. And then, I don't mean the steppes or the band. I mean the Eurasian steppes, the flatlands that go more or less from Ukraine, southern Russia, right the way through to the Korean Peninsula. And that, that produces a shock for the nomadic peoples and their herds. And they start to move westwards in search of more water in a kind of cascade or domino effect. And eventually the Huns arrive in Europe and their great leader, uh, Attila, who's sort of, you know, it's totemic. It's the only person we've ever heard of who's, who's a Hun. But the Huns were very, they were very successful. I, I, I really do burn a candle for, for nomads and the success that they do. They, they get written about very badly. The Mongols sit in the same category. They're extremely adept. At, uh, 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 but what they do is they, they push into Western Europe. And in fact, what they don't do is murder and pillage and rape and kill, although I suspect that does happen, but that doesn't leave a genomic record. And the really exciting thing in my field now is you don't just have to rely on unreliable authors writing 1,000, 2,000 years ago. You can follow the data and you can measure. That's a real 
a total game changer for us as historians. But what, what the, the Huns that settle, and after all, there's a country today in Europe named after them, in you know, Hungary. Uh, my kids still think it's because they're thirsty, and they think that's much funnier than I do. But, uh, and, and, what, what, and this project involved in Hungary is, is been looking at where, where you find uh, new genomics in, in the Hungarian plain. And what, what is obvious what happens when the Huns arrive is they don't murder. In fact, what they do is they adopt sedentary lifeways. They start getting involved in agricultural production. And the people who are living there in Hungary go, oh, shit, this is how you look after cows and horses. And they start to adopt what we would classify in the old days as Hunnic lifeways. And a very clever journalist wrote this up. It's a colleague of mine who wrote this paper. And he said, forget Attila the Hun, think Tiller the Hun. And the problem is, I, I, I did the audio book. I recorded it myself. And when I got to that line, I did it about 40 times. Because every time I kept saying, don't think that, think Attila, no, Tilla the Hun. I've got to say it again, Tilla the Hun. And there was a murmur of laughter, but it's probably not the best joke in the book. Uh, but I think that that idea around how the climate played a role in, in cascading on. And, you know, again, in, in Turkmenistan, in this nomadic world, in 1908, there was a winter that was so bad that a million livestock died within 24 hours. Can I just say in parenthesis that um, I think one of the most interesting themes that run through the book, which uh, Peter's just uh, touched on, is really how the horse transformed the world. And I, I don't want us to go on about that now, because otherwise we'll, we'll run out of time. Can I just recommend that, that you buy the book, and if you're in a hurry, just go to the... <laughs> uh, 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 about nomads. I, I, my eyes were completely opened to what, how, how nomads have helped transform the world. Anyway, <laughs> when, uh, after Rome, or at least the, the West start, part of it collapses, we begin to see the rise of what the people at the time called the Muslimen, yeah. um, and Islam starts. And, and I don't know, but I think for, for ages, a lot of historians thought that Islam was about the fact that the Romans and the Persians had been kicking lumps out of each other for two or three hundred years, and you've got that wreckage out of which uh, comes uh, Muhammad. But, but you argue very strongly about what was happening in Asia at that time, which created... That kind yeah. of I should probably say slightly defensive, although I, I'm aware that I'm jumping around from periods. It is chronological. So you don't have to have the, if anybody's feeling that it's not all making sense, I promise you it all does. 30 pounds signed copies. Uh, after. We, um, may look, we may look like a pair of old hippies rambling, but actually it's very cleverly very, orchestrated. Very cleverly. Uh, yeah, so in the, in the early 7th century, it's, it, in fact, the, the Romans and the Persians have been kicking seven bells out of each other. So there's a, the great war, last war of antiquity. It's partly as a result of the fact that these two great empires go head-to-head for, you know, constantly. And that is sometimes, that, that competition is sometimes not necessarily a bad thing, but the Romans are able to in, inflict a peace settlement on the Sasanians, the great Persian empire, that is very well described as, as a Versailles moment. The, the peace terms are too humiliating. And as a result, at the beginning of the 600s, the Persians rise again. And over the course of about 30 years, there's a war that debilitates... It's a war of attrition. Again, has obvious modern parallels. A war of attrition that degrades resources, takes men away from their families, particularly men that tend to die. It, it catastrophizes the economy. And it eventually leads to the exhaustion of both states... The amazing thing about all of this is that the way that this gets solved is through the nomads. 
At this point, it's the great Turk Empire, and not, not Turks as in Erdogan or Seljuk Turks, you remember from later, but the Turks is a kind of blanket name given to the nomadic peoples who at that time have built an empire bigger than Attila, bigger than, almost as big as the Mongols, but that goes from the Black Sea right the way. It's split into two halves. You have two commanders, but the supreme commander. Uh, and he is brought in by the Roman emperor, emperor Heraclius to give the kind of knockout punch to the Persians. And uh, this is not the first time that the nomads have been brought in in their great ceremonial and screwed over. So he says, right, if we're going to do this properly, I want a recognition of my title, and I want to marry your daughter. I want your, I want your daughter in marriage, because that will give me kudos. And the Romans go, we've never done that. We don't let that happen. And then he goes, in which case I'll go and talk to your friends uh, on the other side of the river, in Ctesiphon, Seleucia. And the Romans go, okay, we'll do it. And at that moment, in about 626, 627, there is a point where the whole of that Roman and Persian world, plus the, the world in China, is about to become a world that is united by nomads and their Buddhist faith. Uh, in the winter of 626, 627, there are two massive volcanic eruptions that devastate nomad livestock, decimate the leadership and lead to internal rebellions. And at precisely that moment, as the Roman-Persian War comes to an end, a new voice is heard from the Hijaz that says, I've got a Blairite solution to all of this, which is it's very simple to become Muslim. You just say the Shahada, it's very simple. There's, no God, there's, there's only one God, and his name is Allah. It's very, we don't have complicated discussions about, is Jesus Christ the Son of God, and is God or not God? Is he ranks equal to? Where does the Holy Spirit fit in? And Islam in its origins is a very simple, straightforward message. And the failure of the nomad world at precisely that moment means that we take a world where the inheritors of that war that step in to pick up the ashes uh, is the great religion of Islam. And its holy text, the Quran, which when it's codified, has a very, very strong ecological subtext. And the great winners in the East are what is known as the Tang Dynasty, who take over and push out what the nomads were but it was absolute touch and go. It's one of those kind of few moments in history where things could have turned very, very different. And we see how successful that is. Again, here in Britain, we don't spend any time. The Mongols aren't on the school syllabus. We don't pay any attention to them. But the Mongols, they last for, for hundreds of years. And of course, they're the progeny, the, the Mughals. We quite like because they have good medals and, and jewels and they build nice buildings in classic Central Asian styles. But it sort of challenges, I think, how we think about history around... Where do, we, where do we triangulate how these things and these great moments happen? But the, the, upside, the, 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 the long and short of it is that Muhammad's successors take over the richest provinces of the Roman Empire, so North Africa and Egypt. They take over the richest provinces of the Persian Empire to push up to the Himalayas. And that means that Arabic as a language, Islam as a culture, you know, music, musically, from its food point of view, from its fashions, as well as linguistically and religiously, is still the dominant world that connects North Africa today, right the way through into uh, Urdu and right up to the, the Hindu Kush. It's, it's an incredible moment that has, a, again, a, a climatological context. Uh, I, I want to jump on in one second to Christopher Columbus, who I was rather surprised at how key uh, Peter thinks that moment was. But there is, briefly, there is one question I have to ask you. Why were the 1300s so rubbish, and were they rubbish everywhere? 1300s. They were rubbish. <laughs> um, they were really rubbish 
partly because in the, uh, in the first two decades of the 1300s, in fact, particularly 1315 to 1321, we have across Europe uh, a set of bovine diseases that decimate protein levels across Europe, totally devastate uh, protein levels. And one of the long-term implications is that children are born in that, that window and you know, young adults have much lower levels of resistance when the Black Death comes about 20 years later. And that's a probably direct correlation. So that, that's one thing that happens. Uh, another one is that, that that's an age of, of mega-competition and, and hyper-competition. That's the middle of the Hundred Years' War. And the problem with that is that when you have things like the Battle of Crecy in 1346 is that soldiers demobilize and people move around to go home. And it's sort of okay when people stay still. They don't spread disease. But when you then have uh, a surge of black death uh, that rises in the 1330s, 1340s, then, then, then things look very complicated. So the Black Death plague has always been around us. You know, it's decimated people before. There's a lot, lot in the book about the Justinianic plague. But in this particular case, what, what plague needs, the plague foci that this, the Black Death rises from are in Central Asia and Kyrgyzstan in particular. But plague needs a vector. And it needs animals, it needs people, and it needs trade. Because otherwise it stays where it is. And at this particular moment, the Mongol Empire is, is like a lubricated engine, working incredibly efficiently. But because the rain is so, uh, excuse my language, shitty, I had a little bit of wine. Because, because the rain is so bad in, in Italy and the, and the harvests fail, the Italian city-states are desperate to buy wheat that's grown above the Black Sea. And when the Mongols detect Black Death, just like what happened with the pandemic most recently, it's the airlines, it's the shipping, it's the people connecting with each other that spread it. So they're so disastrous that they start to kill people in, in, in large numbers. We probably lose somewhere like 40 to 50% of the population of Europe. And that's pretty bad. Although, again, a colleague of mine, James Bellich, uh, uh, who's at Oxford with me, uh, has just written a book called How the Plague Made Europe. And he points out that you know, when you have large numbers of mortalities, you know, well, hey, presto, that means the horses are cheaper and wagons are cheaper and, you know, your clothes are going to be cheaper, and your, your beef is cheaper, and there are and working, women... And working, and working people get paid more. Working people get paid more. So that's, it's bad if you're a king, it's bad if you're worried about the... T- it's bad if you're a chancellor, bad if you're worried about fiscal events, bad if you're worried about your army, but actually, if you're in the peasantry, if you're someone who's lower income, this is a moment where you can negotiate much, much higher rates for your labour. So the 13 hours are really bad for elites, really bad for historians... Uh, really bad for, for people who think that societies go top-down, but actually from the bottom up, uh, people have much more sex in the 1350s and 1360s. Uh, and, and I can measure that because you can see that more children are born. And they didn't discover birth control methods at that time. It's because people are elated about having survived pandemics and they've seen their families die. So they think, you know what, to hell with it. I don't really want to work more hours and we'll get productivity gains in other ways. So the 1300s are, are rubbish from a climate point of view, they're rubbish from an elite point of view, they're rubbish for the 50% of the population that die. But, you know, lo and behold, all of us sitting in this room are survivors. Our ancestors all made it through that Black Death, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And we they either made it through luck or, or, because, or because we carry a gene that those of you, anybody in the room has Crohn's or lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. All of us have a, have a that genomic fluke allowed large parts of the population to survive. That, that now is why it carries different diseases in today's world. So we made it through the horrors of the 1300s. Then it got kind of sunnier for the next 100 years or so. And then Christopher Columbus appears with his boat and Vasco Vasco de Gama as as well. I I had thought, given that you constantly say 
we mustn't look at history in such a Eurocentric way, which if anyone is guilty of, that is me. Um, uh, I don't constantly say, that sounds like I'm a sort of one of those people at a dinner, you think, please let the, the main course come so I can turn to the left and talk to the other person. <laughs> well, maybe I was just feeling guilty and just felt a bit told off. But, um, uh, but, it's, but you make the point that those kinds of voyages... Once they were on, we began to enter into an entirely different world, a world where of, of massive communications and, uh, uh, and trade. Well, it works in, in, in different ways. So what, what happens with the Americas is different to what happens in West Africa and in Asia. So in the Americas, the Europeans, essentially, as a, as a, as a consequence of immune diseases and so on. It's just uh, through violence, through inter-warfare, we're probably looking at 85% population collapse in the Americas of indigenous populations between roughly 1,500 and roughly 1,600. Some of that, again, there are triggers of, of salmonella, of smallpox, of climate events that, make, you know, that, that are hard to, res- hard to survive. And uh, that's, ca- that's catastrophic. On top of that, because of the horse in particular, the European conquest, of, of, which is not, a, not, a, not an animal that survives the ice ages in the Americas, means that distances suddenly collapse. So people who are travelling, there, no, there are no large mammals in uh, Asia beyond the alpaca and the llama. That's not, not great for travelling long distances. So the Europeans are able to totally remodel what they think the Americas are, and, take the, and to extract the resources they want. And in the first instance, the cheap wins are metals, and in particular, silver. This is the first wave of, of, of gold and jewels and so on, but then, then it's silver. And the single mine at Potosi from about 1550 for the next 100, 100 years, 150 years, produces about 70% of the world's silver. So the Europeans are able to extract and recycle to buy things from Asia. The experiences that Europeans have as a result of that newfound wealth are, it's a mixed bag. So that, that, that wealth goes straight to the pockets of people in Seville and Flanders and London and so on in due course. That gives greater spending power to everybody that then start to buy things like spices, silks, ceramics from India, from Asia, from China through the routes the Vasco da Gama opens up. And that then sets up a capitalist war where the East India Company works out that the right thing to do like any business or you know, fund manager or hedge fund is how do you leverage your decent position to get better concessions than your rivals? How do you get monopolies? How do you bribe people to make sure that you get what you want? And that's just how, how unfortunately, history works. You know, that's, that's how... But, but interestingly, in places like West Africa, the Europeans are able to make basically no footprint at all. Yes. Uh, you answer a, a question, which as a kid I remember asking myself, which was, why did they all go to America rather than go to Africa, which was so much nearer? Because African states were much more resilient, much more sophisticated, much more able to resist because they had uh, animals, political structures uh, that were able to cope in a way that... And they had immunological resistance in a way that people in the Americas didn't. So, you know, for hundreds, for, for two or three hundred years, Europeans couldn't get what beyond a cannon shot from the coast because they were kept away. And that was to the start was to the rulers of West Africa's great benefit. The downside was that the resources that Europeans therefore could bring by, by bringing trade into the equation meant, including technological changes, new crops, meant that if you can produce things like potatoes or manioc and rice in West Africa, 
and calorie consumption is more reliable and cheaper, then you potentially have excess labour and you can sell that labour. And that labour gets sold into the transatlantic triangle that then produces sugar, tobacco, cotton, etc. Uh, and curiously, despite how it's all set up in our, you know, in our trying to decolonize and think about race, you know, ironically, the peoples of West Africa, the reason why they were so valuable, in, in, particularly in the southern part of the United States, was because people in West Africa have a genomic, in different parts of West Africa, have genomic resistance to malaria. And through a genetic um, mutation, a gene that provides 90% resistance to falciparum malaria. So it meant that Europeans who were the enslavers, uh, 50% died before the age of five, uh, 80% died before the age of 16. But if you can construct a world where you're racially superior and you're able to pay for people's lives to do the work for you and take the fruits of their labor, cotton, etc., and ship it back to other parts of the world... You can, you can find a way in which you can explain that that's God's will, or you can find a way that's saying that that's a racial benefit that you have, when in fact it shows exactly the opposite, which is the resilience of West African states on the one hand, and of the immunological advantages that the populations who are you know, catastrophically treated for hundreds of years. So that, that opening up of the Americas transforms the Americas, it transforms Africa, starting with West Africa, then through the South and East, and transforms Asia but in very, very different ways. One of the things that uh, you talk about, which had never struck me before, was uh, how much uh, the, the Europeans, when they got to America, moaned about the weather. It just wasn't what they'd been expecting. Yeah, the Spanish, they turn up and they go, well, look, obviously Aristotle didn't know what he's talking about because this is the same latitude and it should be the same. And in fact, the Spanish by 1600 in Florida, which I don't know if he's been to Florida uh, in you know, the winter months, it's you know reasonable climate and you play golf there, from what I understand, and... You know, the orange is plenty. The Spanish in 1600 go, this place is so shit cold, we can't grow anything. So we should just call an end to the project because we're pumping a lot of cash, but for no benefits. We can't grow things. It's inhospitable. Not that worried about the indigenous peoples, that they're less of a threat. It's just, what is the point? This is miles from home, and it doesn't offer us any benefits. And that's because, at that particular moment in time, uh, North America was significantly colder than it is today. So these things are always moving and changing. By the time it becomes the 1700s and 1800s, things look slightly different. Those worlds that, again, I, I write about in the book, of where, where slaves are most valuable on the dark, rich soils of Southern America provides a kind of fault line between where rights are given and where they're not. So if, to the north of the Mason-Dixon line, you know, the, 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 the Yankees in the films that you know are going to win and the bastard confederates, that's not just because people in the north are nice and people in the south are awful, which may or may not be the case. I'm a historian, so I, I want evidence rather than John Wayne films. But to the north, it's because labour's less valuable, because you can't grow cotton, you can't grow tobacco, but you can grow wheat, and wheat you put into the ground. You can have a long cup of tea, wait for it to grow if, if the sun and the rain's right, and then you come back and harvest it. And so it means that in northern latitudes, giving democratic rights and giving rights to people is easier because labour is less valuable. So I think it's those ways in which you can see these big rhythms of history always have a, and it's not just climate, ecological contexts that are, are I think, are important. You know, in fact, as we, as we move, uh, for each degree we move away from the equator, 
there are higher levels of, of democratic institutions. And that's not just because people are blonde and blue-eyed and, you know, the master race. It's because they don't have to worry about malaria. They don't have to worry about life expectancies. They don't have to worry about cooperation. They don't have to worry about the cost of labor in the same way that in the tropical regions you do. And again, linking that to the world of today, where we have ecological, environmental, and climate stress and global warming, you know, it's the rich countries of the North who benefited from our environmental envelope who are most insulated... And it's, by and large, poor and emerging people, emerging markets, developing world, that are much more exposed to those kinds of risks and threats. I'm going to have to jump onto the 19th and 20th century now. Excuse me for that. Don't I wish this could go on all night. I'm so yeah. sorry. Um, yeah. Two, it seemed to me from your book that two things were happening. On one hand, there was, as it were, a rediscovery of the importance of the environment. But on the other hand, there were utopias being proposed which were hideous as far as the environment is concerned. I won't bother with the quotes now, but you know, read some of the, the quotes from Mao, like, you know, if, if, if the mountain gets in the way of the people, then the people smash the, the, the mountain yeah. down. Similar things uh, from Lenin, uh, similar, similar things from US presidents, similar things uh, from, in Cuba yeah. from, from yeah. Fidel Castro. It was as though we want to feed the poor in order to do that we have a right to destroy. While at the same time you have all these novelists yeah. and people singing about how important the environment is and have we forgotten that? Uh, in, that in that 20th century world, the conviction was that nature was something to be conquered and could be conquered and also should be conquered. And that, pr- that prioritisation of the human experience that you know, we'll find a solution later in the world, you know, later down the line. I mean, one of the things that I, I didn't know about um, before I started researching and writing the book was the way in which nuclear energy wasn't just thought of as a energy source or as a weapon of destruction, but this is a way in which we could remodel our environments. So Soviet scientists spent time thinking, working about how could we use nuclear bombs to make the Sahara green? Um, how could we use this incredible new energy to uh, remodel the world that would eradicate poverty and put rivers in places that weren't rivers and create harbours where there weren't harbours and allow cities to be built in places that weren't cities. And that belief that we can stay ahead and solve problems is, is something I think we do pay the price for now where the scale of the problems coming towards us. And I've got you know, lots of people in the room will be right to say there are lots of technological changes that will maybe save us from the worst parts of global warming and climate. Maybe they'll say that there are ways in which we prevent it from... You know, maybe we can chug along as normal. I'm probably more sceptical about that. And certainly there'll be, but there'll certainly be ways in which you can save from some of them and in non-linear ways. But I think that, that we, we got carried away with thinking that humans are able to control their own destiny and they're able to create utopias that detaches them from soothsaying and religions and you know, we can kill God and we can manage this for ourselves. And it turns out that, in, you know, it's a little bit of a glib thing to say, but God is maybe more benign than human beings are. And, you know, you need to visit Auschwitz to see that, the, the, the way in which we're able to inflict profound suffering where we, where we decouple ourselves from nature, decouple ourselves from meaning, and say we're just going to be rational. That, you know, rational decisions are not necessarily always, always, always good ones because they're short-term. And, we've dis- and what was so odd was, although all of the, what you've just described was being debated, it seems to me, up until the 1980s. And in the 1980s, it almost felt that the scales were dropping from our eyes uh, and there was 
um, a kind of more benign environmental utopia ahead. It looked like we were, you know, at, at the foot of Everest and we were about to climb up. But you categorise terrifyingly how since the end of the 1980s, we've extracted, we've damaged, we've cursed uh, the earth far more than we ever have previously. Well, so uh, Eunice Foote, writing in the 1850s, warned about um, women pioneer scientists about how burning fossil fuels and burning would put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and would warm us up. And, you know, the worries about what that would do go back not just decades, they go back centuries. So the fact we talk about a climate crisis now, you know, it's, it's you know, sort of slightly mystifying about those missed opportunities. But as you say, Tony, so the end of the Cold War was great for freedoms, although we're now picking up that maybe things weren't quite what we've seen, what they've seen with the, the solutions of the Soviet Union and so on. But uh, as Davis Wallace Wells, who wrote the wonderful book In, in, in Inhospitable Earth, put it, um, 50% of the world's carbon has been burned since the first episode of Seinfeld was broadcast. So when was the first episode of Blackadder? Uh, 83. Bloody hell, when was the last one? Maybe, I'm that doing, means I'm a new doing one it coming. on Comic Relief in two weeks' time. <laughs> when, when, was, when was the last one? Uh, 91. 91. So, so, so since um, 1989, half the carbon that we burnt has been burnt since then. Wow. Right? 85% has been burnt since the end of the Second World War. And in 1988, James Hansen, the chief scientist at NASA, said, this is not a joke, this is not a trial run. We were worried at that time about um, CFCs and, and, and the ozone layer, which actually was in fact quite well solved um, through arms, arms agreements and so on. We did quite well with the ozone layer. But James Hansen said, look, that's fine, that's important, you need to do that. But the greenhouse gas thing is real, it's significant, we've got to do something with it. And Bush, senior, uh, at the so-called Rio summit in 92, said, our children will never forgive us um, if we don't solve climate and we don't deal with it. And he's a man who never spent any time reading any environmental stuff. But it was a good vote win at that time. Um, and uh, when these protocols eventually got through to Kyoto in 1995... Um, it, was, it was rejected by the US Senate by 95 votes to zero to, to try to curb our, our emissions. And you know, that, that, that probably slightly needs to put in context. Here in Europe, our greenhouse emissions are down 25% in the last 30 years. The US, they're down 25% in 30 years. But they were, that's partly been achieved, not because we please keep recycling, please be environmentally conscious, do all of that stuff. But it's partly because we parked all of our industry in parts of the world that we now grade badly like India, like China. So 496 of the world's most polluted cities on Earth are in Asia, in you know, parts of the world I work on. And that allows us to sleep well in quite clean air here because our flat screen TVs, our laptops, our Nike trainers are made in conditions that are uh, awful from a climatological point of view and actually quite often awful from a human point of view. You know, but again, the worlds I work on uh, in Xinjiang, people, I wrote about that in my New Silk Roads book five or six years ago. No one paid any attention to what was happening in Xinjiang. Now it's become quite a live human rights issue. But, you know, you're probably none of you in this room will have done this. But our imports in the UK last year from Xinjiang rose by 192%. So we sort of say, on the one hand, we really care about this stuff. But we keep on buying. We keep on spending. And we keep on, we keep on mortgaging our children's futures and our grandchildren's futures. And again, it's, it's something I don't, right in the book, but I think it's important to say here, 
is that new research that came out at the end of last year shows that in liberal democracies of rich countries in Western Europe, 60% of people under the age of 45 don't believe that we need to have regular elections. Don't believe, and believe that a strongman leader, and it's phrased as strongman, not strong woman, strong person, strongman leader is a price worth paying for long-term gains. And, uh, you know, I talk about this with my children, uh, with our children, I talk about it with our, my students. And that, that collapse in the confidence in democracy alongside the climate crisis is not irrational when you see what student debts people leave university with, when you see how unlikely it is to be able to get a mortgage, you know, the price of housing, uh, the fact that we have all burnt stuff for 30 years and now go you guys now to be clean and green, you can't go on holidays to these parts of the world we've been. And, and that has a consequence when it comes to politics. And that's completely recognisable to me uh, to moments in the past where the envelope of your environmental capabilities shifts against you and those consequences are not just it's going to be a bit hotter, or Donald Trump says, you know, wear a short sleeve shirt, but they are, they, are, they are existential, the crises that come towards us. Yeah, there's a terrifying quote that, uh, that you uh, put towards the end of the book from some Miami financier who says, what does it matter if uh, Miami is under a few foot of water in 100 yeah. years' time. Our, our, loan loan... Is, our loan book is seven to eight years. Yeah, and so he says, our loan book is seven years. What does it matter what happens in the eighth year? Yeah, but, you know, if, if anybody's here and works in the insurance markets, uh, we are almost at the point this year where you can't insure real estate in Florida, right? Because of rising sea levels, because of the hurricanes, because of infrastructure, because of the cost. You know, on, on most sanguine and sane projections done by... Scientists, rather than Joe Public, who has a view about science, you know, 40% of climate tweets are generated by bots. Our friends in Moscow, or not friends in Moscow, are quite active in seeing that climate is quite a good way to divide us, amongst many others, um, is that the current projections that by 2050, we're looking at about 100 million people in the United States where the average summer temperature in July and August is going to be 50 degrees centigrade. And you, you, you can stay ahead of that. You can burn stuff. You can, use, you can find ways to air condition, but that has a price. And in our current world, again, you know, we talked about it before, that plugs quite closely into... Russian oil fields and Russian gas fields and the Middle East, where we're living through at the moment one of the greatest wealth transfers in history, where if you're an oil producer, oil provider, oil supplier, you know, this last year, 2022, oil majors produced $200 billion of profit, which is great if you're a shareholder, great if you work for one of these oil majors, great if you own oil fields. If you don't, uh, and forget about rich countries like us, but in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in the Americas, uh, central and southern, in Asia, then that world looks, looks much more complicated and much more precarious, and that comes quickly, quite, towards us quite quickly. I was hoping to be able to nudge Peter into like a positive ending before we move to questions, uh, but I think that would be uh, ridiculously uh, utopian, and I realise that we will be slung out fairly soon. Oh, my God, Esme's walking towards me with her arms folded already. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the tools um, that you've looked at to show the advancements um, or the, the changes environmentally. Just anything you find quite interesting with change rates of trees or... or um, I'm not, yeah, just, Did you say the, the tools? Yeah, yeah, the, the tools that you've okay. come across that you find most interesting. Great. So, I, I, so I, I came on with my bag and Tony said, why, why would you bring your bag with you? And I went, because it makes me feel like I look like Indiana Jones, which is a kind of... Uh, historian's dream. Uh, every now and again, historians or archaeologists who's got terrible archaeological ethics, by the way, Indiana Jones, because he nicks stuff and never hands it back or puts it in a Western museum, um, 
uh, every now and again, historians do find things that are incredible uh, and new, uh, new, a new text or you know, some new material evidence. Um, and that does happen, you know, if you look hard enough. Most of our day job is the mundane of looking at stuff that other people looked at before and finding things they haven't seen. And um, that is changing dramatically in the last 20 years because not just of the sciences, but because the way in which we can use those sciences. So tree rings, for example, you can measure, will tell you something about precipitation levels and heat. Uh, lake sediment levels will tell you about what levels of water there are in the lake at any given time and, and what's decomposing in them. Fossilised pollen will tell you how much land is being disturbed and even sometimes what it's being used for, so you get a sense of agricultural production and demographics. Uh, ice cores in Greenland and the Antarctic in particular, if you drill down, will give you bubbles of carbon dioxide that show you temperature levels, uh, but they will also show you impurities like metals. So we can see, for example, in the Roman Empire, more metal production was going on, uh, making you know, lead and you know, all the rest of swords and all things like that, wheels... And it was the highest level of lead pollution in the air for 1,500 years. So when Attila, or as my new friend, I now call him Tilla, the Hun arrives, it kneecaps metal production for about 1,500 years, which is quite an important tool. And the thing that's different, and there are lots of environmental historians who've been writing for many, many years, many centuries, millennia even, predecessors of mine, the big difference in the last you know, 20 years is the way in which we can measure accurately and that means that you're not just writing about the environment you're not just writing about climate you're looking at database sources and that's a real challenge for young historians so we have this crazy system in this country where we basically push young people into the humanities or stem and that produces lots of things my scientist colleagues think history is bloody easy because it's all about dead kings and uh, my historian friends, typically, and humanities friends, typically think science is absolutely impossible and they panic. But we need to integrate these two together in an important way. So there's, there's these, I call them climate, climate archives in my book. They're, they're hugely prolific. They're very unevenly distributed globally. Lots more, lots more in Europe, China, North America than there are in Africa, for example, um, because that reflects how we work. Um, you know, 95% of my colleagues in history posts here in the UK work on the history of the West or, you know, that includes Brits arriving in Asia and India and so on. But that, that, dis, that, that imbalance can be corrected when we start to look at uh, climate data. And so, again, some, some scholars who are working on the South Pacific, we can measure now, we can see how people are populating the Americas in the 1200s in a moment of particular climate optimal. And we can see, because of, thanks to genetic, we can see that there's a single genetic contact between South America and Polynesia in the 1250s. One, one shipload, one person. And that's not that I have dreamt it, not because someone wrote it, but we can measure the genetics. We can measure the genetic, we can pl plot the genetics of disease and of, of plants. So we can, we can see diffusion in a way that it's, it's a bit like that bit in Wizard of Oz, where your sounds, I couldn't see you, but from the sound of your voice, possibly too young to know what the Wizard of Oz is. But our generation, the bit where the film goes from colour into uh, black and white into colour, where suddenly, you know, you, you can see. And the, these scientific materials are hyperabundant, almost impossible to keep up with, but breathtaking in their, in their range that they can let, let people like me loose in the, in the sweet shop. My great friend uh, Mick Aston, Professor Mick Aston, who was the, uh, the, the Professor on Time team, prophesied that within a couple of decades uh, there'll be little trolleys like they have geophys now, um, which will 
which will run over the surface of land and which will give you all the information that, that you've just described and you'll be able to print out straight away, which will give you so that such vivid stories of uh, civilization and stuff. So anybody who's bored tonight or can't get to sleep, there's a fantastic CIA project that's been put online, declassified satellite photos across Central Asia. Uh, where because of the Cold War and because of Afghanistan and so on, uh, the mapping that's gone on. And when you have dry summers like we had last summer was the highest temperature recorded in China's history. Uh, China's changed its territorial boundaries over many centuries, don't worry about that. But the satellites have shown up outlines of buildings that we never knew existed and would have taken archaeologists years, you found them completely by chance, and suddenly you can find texture to what's going on. So we just got, I'm part of a a team that we just got a million pound grant for the Levyhulme Trust to dig um, uh, sections of irrigation canals in Uzbekistan and Central Asia that we're doing this summer. Um, to look at what levels of climatic changes there were over the course of about 2,000 years. And it's just, it's just, I can't tell you, it's just incredible to be able to step into that world. You know, Tony spent you know, half your life in a ditch, <laughs> digging, looking for things. Uh, you know, your, your world is going to become much quicker in the same way that my, you know, when I was a graduate student, to find a book I wanted to read, I had to go to the card catalogue, I had to find it, write it down, put it in a tube that disappeared, and then 24 hours later... Now, you know, with the joy of connectivity, you know, you can download materials in, in real time. So those efficiencies are, are incredible. Leading on from the, um, the, the question about tools, so you've got all these great new tools, new information. Is there any particular piece of information, data, that you're now looking at and going, if only we could now have this data, it would fill in some gaps? If so, what are, what are those... You know, every time you get a new tool, it just reveals that there are more gaps in your knowledge. What's the, the next that's thing a, you'd love to get a, filled That's in? a great question, and I'm going to give such a rubbish answer, so I'm, I'm really, I apologise in advance. What I should say before I finish, because no one here is young, please do buy a copy of this for the young people in your lives, nephews, nieces, children, grandchildren, and so on. I, I do think it's really important, and Tony has done that so well. We, we as historians owe Tony such a great debt of thanks getting onto a platform like this, being able to talk about history, being able to encourage people to read, it is really, really rare. You know, TV programs don't commission things easily. It's expensive to do, and viewers need to watch. So you coming out tonight, you know, it keeps... It doesn't keep me in po- just keep me in post. It, it's, it's about getting the next generation of researchers, and, you know, I'm here um, because I, I heard it was with Tony this evening. So uh, my rubbish answer to that is, and my wife will tell you this is God's truth, my favourite thing in the world, among, amongst my favourite things in the world, apart from my children, my wife, my mother's also probably here, um, is, is, is a good pick and mix. Right? I love a pick and mix, particularly one that's not extortionately priced, uh, which you can occasionally find. And so your question is a bit like, you've got all these sweets that you never get to eat. What's the one thing you can't see, right? What isn't there? And I've got the flying saucers. I've got, the, I've got a bit of a sweet tooth, the dolly mixtures, which is not a very manly one to go for, but there you go. All, you know, the big strawberries, I, I, they are just in abundance. So to say, what else could there be? I'm just happy gorging for the time being. And, uh, you know, and I think also, I've also come to the end of the book uh, which means I'm talking about what I have written. So it's a sort of slight trip-up question, which is, what haven't you done? Um, but, so, but I'm always on the lookout. You know, people like Tony, naturally, hugely curious. All of you, all of you are, otherwise you wouldn't be here this evening. You know, I think it's, it's what, what, that, what Silk Roads did really well, and I'm most proud of, is not that it sold lots of copies, which it amazingly did. My last publisher dropped it, dropped me, because they thought no one would buy it. So, 
Um, uh, that turned out okay for, for Bloomsbury, who've been great, and I love and they're here tonight, so thank you. And it looks fantastic, you know, the wrapper looks great and the content is good, but it's the, is that it changed that debate around what history is and that, that recentering of the world to be global, to put us all into a context that isn't just about Europe, isn't just about our neighbours, but to see us within this kind of big tapestry of human existence, wherever we come from, whatever our skin colour, how we've got to where we are, whatever our gender, whatever our religions, how we try to survive the things that, that is thrown at us by the natural world. And the thing that's going to throw at us now, it's a good way to sign off actually, slightly kind of Neil McGregor, end of one of his podcasts, is that nature is going to throw stuff at us because we forced it to, right? Nature doesn't care if our species survives. You know, if we have put so much carbon that we can't make it, I can promise you there are lots of creatures, organisms, animals, bacteria, pathogens, plants that will do very, very well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, it just won't be us. So we need to understand our own place within that cosmological process. And in that sense, all I am is the latest in this long line of people going back to the birth of the origins of writing, trying to explain how we fit into this great, beautiful planet hurtling through space at whatever it is, hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. It's a wonderful book. You may have noticed that I've read it avidly. Uh, I suggest that you buy not only one copy, but another for the person that you love most who isn't in the same house as, as you. Thank you, Peter, for a lovely evening. Good night. This episode starred Peter Frankopan and was presented by Satoni Robinson. The producer was Esme Bright, and we make this show with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed the episode, please do leave us a review. If you didn't, tell no one. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. Listener.